Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. So we pray that you would turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. Make your face shine upon your servants and teach us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series together through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and we've come now to uh, the end of 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, beginning our reading at verse 14 and reading through the end of the passage. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning our reading at verse 14, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, we've had the wonderful privilege of considering these two letters together uh, over the past few weeks, um, and as all good things in this world come to an end, we've come to the end of uh, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. Um, it may not be the last letter that Paul ever wrote to the Thessalonians or the last word he had for this church, but it's the last word that the Holy Spirit has delivered to us that was delivered to them, um, and hopefully we've learned a lot about what God has taught um, by this, these inspired letters that have been preserved for the church throughout the generations. Um, and these closing statements are important. Um, it's not just that the apostle needs to say something to round out the letter um, and, and lands on these things. He, he ends with important things, um, and they're important things not only for them, but also for us to take note of. Um, and so we want to think about what we see in these closing statements uh, that Paul makes ending this letter to this church. Um, and what do we see in the end of this passage as Paul closes with this church? Um, he sees, we see the Holy Spirit reminding us of the purpose of discipline, uh, the presence of peace, and the promise of grace. Uh, he's rounding out his discussion of discipline, and then he relieves the people of God with the presence of peace and the promise of grace. Uh, and these are important things for the people of God to take note of in every generation. He has been talking about discipline as he's gone on, and he ends here talking about the purpose of discipline. Um, that's spelled out in verse 14, um, that if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Um, Paul tells us something important about the purpose of discipline um, in this passage is the purpose of discipline is that sinners would be ashamed of their sinful conduct. Um, now, the word shame has fallen on 
hard times in our world because uh, we always hear the message, you should not be ashamed, right? That, that we shouldn't be ashamed of things. Don't be ashamed of who you are, right? Be who you are. Be yourself. Be proud of who you are. And certainly there's no, there's no purpose we want to ever say that people should feel ashamed about things they shouldn't be ashamed about. Um, but there are things in this world that we should be ashamed of, that should cause shame uh, when they're reflected upon. And sin is one of those things. Uh, we should be ashamed of sinful conduct. Uh, we should experience the shame of recognizing our sin. Hopefully when we come, it's not just happening on the Lord's Day, but particularly on the Lord's Day when we come and we hear God's law and we hear how we ought to live and then we hold that up as a mirror to our lives, I hope we are from time to time ashamed of our conduct. Uh, ashamed maybe that we have to come and confess the same sins to God that we confessed last week. Ashamed that we have made so little progress. We should not be proud of our sins. Um, our sins should not leave us unaffected. Um, they should be a source of shame. And one of the difficulties that we know about sin is it's deceitful. Um, and what it does is comes to us and says, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. You're good. You're fine. Um, and when, sometimes people who are hardened in their sin need God's Word to break through that hardness to show them that they really ought to be ashamed of where they are. And Paul reminds us that that's the purpose of discipline, to try to cause sinners who become hardened in their sin to face the reality of it. To have to face the shame that should come uh, to reinforce that notion so that they would turn from their sin and find forgiveness and restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, one of the purposes of discipline is that the sinner might become ashamed of their conduct, but it's not the ultimate purpose of discipline. The ultimate purpose of discipline is not to ashamed but to bring forth the right kind of shame so that forgiveness would be sought. So that we would seek the covering of our shame that the Lord offers. Because it's really only the Lord who can truly cover the shame of our sin. Think back to the Garden of Eden and that pitiful attempt to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. You know, in, in all the imagery of the Garden of Eden, the fig leaf fig leaf outfits always look good. They, they look like they're well put together. Um, go sometime and take big leaves and try to make clothes out of them and see if you'd want to be walking around in those clothes. That must have been a pitiful attempt to cover. Certainly pitiful if you're trying to cover with fig leaves the sin before an all-seeing, all-knowing God. It's only God who can come in His grace and cover shame. It's only God and His grace that can truly restore sinners. And that's really the purpose of discipline, to make people face the shame and come and find the relief that only God can offer the sinner. I mean, Paul is saying that this is the purpose that he has said these things to them so that sinners might become ashamed of their sin and turn to the Lord. And one of the ways we can help people do that is by following the process that's been outlined in God's Word. Now, 
2 Thessalonians 3 here at the end doesn't say everything that needs to be said about discipline. If we wanted to have a full-orbed understanding of how church discipline functions, we'd have to go to various other places in Scripture. We'd have to go to Matthew 16. We'd have to go to Matthew 18. We'd have to go to 1 Corinthians 5 to spell out fully what is going on in the discipline of the church. But Paul does say something important about the process here, that it should involve a holy separation on the part of the covenant community. Uh, What does he say in verse 14? If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he might be ashamed. Right? The fact that this is public disobedience is is accounted for by the fact that we we can take note of these people. Uh, They'll they'll be known for their disobedience. We're to take note of their public disobedience and take note of those who are persistent in their disobedience. Right? Paul has pointed out some of these things in his letters. He said, you know, I told you about this when I preached to you. I wrote to you about this before. This is not the first time you're hearing these things from me. And people who continue to disobey what Paul has written in this letter, who will not receive the things he said, are really rejecting things he said to them several times. Things he said to them several times on the basis of his apostolic authority. And the church is being told, take note of people who are being repeatedly told what to do by the Apostle Paul and repeatedly persist in their disobedience. Persist in their disobedience in such a way that it's going on in public. That people can take note of that and recognize that such persistence, public, we try that again, such persistent public disobedience is not just disobedience against what Paul has said, what some man has decreed, but against the word of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul speaks with the authority of the Lord. And so to disobey what he says in his word is to disobey what the Lord has said through him. And God's people are to take note of that person and not to have anything to do with them. Uh, Now, what does this mean? It's important that we understand what Paul is getting at here. This is similar to what Paul had said about the idol in verse 6, that God's people were to keep away from them. And now here he says they are to take note of them and not to have anything to do with them. So now he's applying this principle more broadly to those who won't, not just those who are idle, but those who are not receiving many of the other things that Paul has said in this letter. They're not to have anything to do with them. Um, And we want to make sure that we understand this. What is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about some kind of shunning? Is he talking specifically about excommunication? How are we to think about this and how are we to apply it? Um, Well, I think we're we're helped if we think about how this word has been used elsewhere in Scripture. Um, In in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word comes up in Hosea chapter 7, verse 8. And there it's used in the context of mixing with and intermingling with the people who are around Israel. And we know that that was one of the things that the covenant community was often told not to do in the Old Testament, getting mixed up with them and getting mixed in with them. There was to be a holy separation of God's people. You were living in the world with the people around you. You couldn't do anything about that. Um, You were going to be in contact with people in the world. But what does God's word come and say to us about the worldly in the world? Don't get mixed in with them and don't get mixed up with them. 
And this is what Paul is saying about those who are walking in open rebellion to the Word of God. Don't get mixed in with their wickedness. Don't get mixed up with their wickedness. Elsewhere about discipline, we're told a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. There's a danger that you get mixed up with the wickedness of others. So there's to be a holy separation, not a total isolation, but a holy separation where we're not being influenced by those who refuse to receive God's word. That we be those people who refuse to have anything to do with evil. And the function of that, Paul will, will says, will will accomplish for the sinner is hopefully to make them feel that alienation. That there is a separation between them and God. That there is a separation between God's people and them. Always with what goal? That they might seek to be brought back and received again into the people of God. Um, We're hoping that people will feel that as long as they engage in the way that they're sinning, they have no part in the kingdom of God. The hope is that that separation will bring out some of that shame they ought to feel so that they would seek restoration. That is always the purpose of discipline, ultimately. To see the sinner restored, to be looking out for the well-being of the sinner and to plead with them to be reconciled to God. And the process of discipline actually is appointed by God to try to help do this in the life of the unbeliever. To show them, or somebody who's walking in open sin, to show them that they are separating themselves from the people of God. They're walking into a place of isolation, a place of shame from which only God can recover them. And it's it's hoped that this, this shame will open the door for admonition to be heard. Right? That this, this shame and this separation will open the door for an admonition to be heard. Right? Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Right? The per- Sometimes in the history of the church, we've been very good at that shunning aspect, the separating aspect, and not so great on the seeking the well-being of the sinner. Um, and... Paul tells us this helpful balance. That separation should make them ashamed so that there might be opportunity to come and be warned as a brother. Not to be regarded as an enemy, but to be warned as a brother. And that distinction is so important, isn't it? For how we speak to that person. To recognize that that person that's walking in sinfulness no matter how open and notorious their conduct might be, to look at that sinner and to see, here is a person who is being utterly deceived by their sin, thinking they are walking into this glorious place where they can just get free of the God who's always restraining, the God who's always trying to tell me who I am and what I have to do, and there's this wonderful door I can walk through that I'll just be in that wonderful, glorious place where I can decide what I want to do. And I can go where I want to go. And I can be unfettered by this God who is just the God of no fun. Who doesn't want me to live life on my terms. And sin deceives them into thinking that way. Instead of seeing the cry of God to them that through that door lies death. 
Through that door lies ultimate unhappiness. Not a human flourishing, but a human finishing. And God is desirous to turn us away from that. That God is not the God of no fun. God is the God of blessedness and happiness and life eternal. And only tells us to stay away from paths that will not lead us there. Um, That's what God does for us. That is what we are to seek to do for our brothers. And if we begin to think of sinners as enemies, especially those who are turning in in our own uh, group, in our own church, we begin to think of them as enemies. That's how we'll talk to them. That's how we'll treat them. And Paul says, "Don't, don't treat them that way. When you see a poor, lost sinner wandering into death, warn them as you would a brother. It's so important because God's design in discipline is clearly not that people be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When the sinner feels the shame and realizes where they are and realizes where they've brought themselves, they need to they need to have that knowledge that there is forgiveness and comfort and love from God. That the sinner who repents can be restored. Right? Because there is that, that tendency in the part of the sinner, even the sinner who turns has been brought back by the grace of God, enlightened to see their situation for what it is and to know that they have to return. Uh, to be like the prodigal son and to think, well, I can go back, but I'll only be able to go back as a slave. The, 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 the father won't receive me again as a son. But maybe I can creep in as a slave. Right? The, he, remember how the prodigal son rehearses that before he goes back? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be, be called your son. I've lost hope of coming back to that. But receive me again as a slave in your house. And what does he find when he comes back to the father? He finds the father running to meet him. And by God's grace, as pastors have pointed out, he never even gets to the bargaining chip with his dad. He starts where he'd planned. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he never gets to the slave offering because his father enwraps him. And says to get the robe and to bring the ring and to, to kill the fatted lamb because my son has returned. We're, not, we're afraid that the Father won't receive us like that when we come back. And one of the things we can do for brothers who are wandering in sin to warn them but also to remind them of the great love of God for us in Christ. That he's willing to receive sinners. And Paul can speak with knowledge of that, can't he? Because he knows what he was before the Lord called him. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, look, I was out to murder the church. That was my goal in life. And I was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. And he appeared to me on the Damascus Road and radically changed me from a persecutor to a son. And the first time I met a Christian... In that changed way, he called me brother. Right? Ananias, who was appointed to, to, to restore Saul by the Lord, had only heard of Saul the persecutor. 
And the Lord told him what the work that he'd done in his life. And when Ananias comes to him, he greets him as a brother. That's the, rest, that's the restoration the Lord can do. That's what we are hoping will be accomplished in discipline. But it's, it's a messy business, isn't it? It's difficult to know if we're doing the right thing by the sinner. It's difficult to see the sinner wandering as they are. The, the, the work of the church is a messy business, and that's why the, included in this last admonition about discipline and the difficulties the church faces is the promise of the presence of peace that will be with the church. Um, whenever we contemplate the church this side of glory, uh, we remember that it's far from perfect. We don't do everything that we ought to do. And we've learned that as we've gone through this letter to this, this church. This was a good church. Of the churches that are written to in the New Testament, this, this church ranks right up there with the Philippians as a church with which Paul is overall very happy with. But what was true even of this, this good church? It was filled with doctrinal problems. People didn't understand appropriately about the coming day of the Lord. It was filled with ethical Problems, problems of life, idleness, unwillingness to obey God's word. And when we consider the imperfections of the church in this world, we can be overwhelmed at times with a sense of our own divisions, our own difficulties. And what does the church in those moments need to be reminded of? We need to be reminded of the presence of peace. The presence of peace that goes with the church. Um... And that's what Paul ends with in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. The church needs to be reminded that we have the presence of peace and that we hope in the activity of the Lord of peace, as Paul calls Jesus Christ in verse 16. This is a very interesting way for Paul to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only time Paul ever calls him this. The only time Paul ever calls him the Lord of peace is right here. Sometimes he'll refer to him as the God of peace. The God of peace will be with you. But here is the only time Paul talks about the Lord of peace. And what is Paul doing by doing that? Drawing our attention to Jesus Christ as the Lord who brings peace to his people. And that's the hope God's people have to live in. That we have the peace that only the Lord of peace can give. And we need to understand what God means by peace in this word. Sometimes we just think about peace as the absence of strife. That when a war is over, you have peace. Because the strife is over. And of course, that's part of it, the absence of strife. But when God talks about peace, he doesn't mean just the absence of strife. He means the presence of complete and perfect blessedness. That's the kind of peace that Jesus Christ represents. That's the peace he procured by his death on the cross. Not just absence from strife for the people of God with their God but a complete and perfect blessedness from their God. 
Right, going back to the garden again, Adam declared war on God there in the garden. And human beings have been waging war against God foolishly ever since. And what does Jesus Christ come and do by his coming into the world? He makes peace. He puts an end to that warfare. And he secures the perfect blessedness of God. He procured it by his death on the cross and he pours it out on his people. That's the great promise of the Lord of peace. Not just that he wins peace, but that he shares peace. He procures it and then he pours it out on his people richly. And if we understand the Lord's peace in that way, it helps us to have a greater understanding of when Jesus talks about peace, what he means. Think about John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I give you my peace. The absence of strife with the Father. The complete and perfect blessedness of fellowship with the Father. Jesus is saying, that's the kind of peace I leave with you. And I don't give it the way the world gives it. Now, now what would he have meant by that? Well, the the disciples lived in a world where people were always giving peace. They were always saying, shalom, that was how they greeted one another. Peace be with you. Right? And and the world gives it as a wish. And sometimes various degrees of, you know, sincerity behind it. Sort of like the way we would say to someone, have a good day. Sometimes we really mean it. Sometimes it's just the thing we say. It was the same in their culture. Peace was the thing you said. What Jesus wants his disciples to understand is when I say peace to you, I'm not saying it like the world says it. As a wish. As a hope with no power to do anything for you. I leave my peace with you. And I don't give it as the world gives it. It's not a wish, it's a certainty. You can be assured that you go forth in this world with my peace. He has the power to give it. He has the power to give us absence from strife with God. The power to give us complete and blessed fellowship with the Father. He says, I give it. I give it to you freely. I give it to you richly. The Lord of peace is with us. The peace with God that gives us hope that we can be at peace with each other. That's what we're ultimately hoping for in the church. That day when our labors will be over and the Lord returns in glory and the church will be at that kind of peace. No more strife between us. Complete, blessed, and perfect fellowship between us with our God together. And we can be assured that we will always live in that peace with God because the Lord of peace will always be with us. With us in every circumstance of life. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Isn't that what we need? Peace in all times and in every way. No exception to the peace. No exception to the absence of strife. No exception to the complete and perfect blessedness. All times and in every way. We need to hear that, that that's God's will for us. That we have peace 
even when we're afraid, even when we're anxious, even when we're having those dark nights of the soul, do I really have peace with God? To know that we do. We need to have that assurance because we're afraid of almost everything. I love these words. I'm afraid of almost everything. Death, the judgment of God, the world, the devil, the future, etc. You know who said that? Martin Luther. I'm afraid of everything. Um, what is the one thing that gives me hope in the midst of all that fear? He said, to you a child is born. To you a son is given. He said, that will bring me light when everything else is dark. That will bring me hope when everything else disappoints. That alone can give me peace. That the Lord of peace is with us. How do we know that that peace will never leave us or disappoint us? Because that Lord of peace is with us always. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. What Lord? The Lord of peace. Who is present with his people always to the very end of the age, will never leave us or forsake us. That's how we know that we live in the presence of His peace. And then Paul ends by leaving us with the promise of His grace. The promise of His grace. Um, Paul does something wonderful here at the very end of the letter. He signs it off on it himself. Notice that in verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Um, Paul had a secretary write letters for him. Um, you needed to do that in the ancient world because you needed someone who could write very small, very, very neatly, conserve the space on the page. If you've ever seen ancient documents, they're written very small. You needed someone to do that. Um, and Paul says elsewhere, I write big. I'm not good for these kind of letters. So I need a secretary to conserve space. But one of the things he liked to do at the end of his letters was sign it himself. Write it in his own handwriting. So you would see it, you know, maybe, maybe we can relate to this. You would see it all in neat, perfect penmanship, and all of a sudden, at the end, you're like, oh, that's how Paul writes. And he said, this is, the, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter I write, which is important because people have been trying to, you know, send other letters saying, these are apostolic letters. He said, no, you'll know it because my, my handwriting's big. You can't miss it. This is how I sign all my letters. He takes the time to write to them at the end to write a greeting. But what, what are particularly the words he reserves for himself for them at the end of the letter? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The promise of grace is what he wants to leave the church. And he wants to leave it with them in his own hand to emphasize that truth for them here at the end of the letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Why do we need that promise of grace at the end of this letter? Why is that so important for the Thessalonians and for us? Because Paul has called on God's people to do a lot in these letters. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by false teaching. Let no one deceive you by false words or purported letters from us. Stand firm and hold the traditions you were taught by us. Pray for gospel progress and for our safety. Don't indulge the idol and don't be idle yourself. Don't grow weary of doing good works. Don't associate with the wicked, but admonish them as brothers. Thanks, Paul. Just a little thing to do this week. Right? That's your list of things to do, people of God, as you go out. 
And if we were to pile them all up like that, what are we going to say? I can't, I, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. I didn't make it here in my commute without growing weary of doing good works. How am I going to do all these things that Paul is calling on us to do? The Christian life is a demanding calling. It calls us to do a lot. We didn't even say anything here about picking up your cross daily, denying yourself and following Jesus. We know it's a difficult road to walk, and you can't turn right or left on that road. And if we were left to walk that road in our own strength, we would surely stumble and fall to our own destruction. That's why he ends us with these assuring words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. The grace that will help us do all that God has called us to do. That in the face of a demanding calling to be recognized, to recognize that we receive all the grace we need to do what God has called us to do. We are never left in need of grace. There is always grace to supply our every need. God's kindness in providing for all the needs of sinners is such that nothing we need will ever be kept back. That he will pour out on us the grace we need. I'll end with a quote about grace um, here that is, I think, important for all of us as we meditate on the grace needed to accomplish the calling of the Christian life. God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of election, contradict the grace of reconciliation, overlook the grace of indwelling, but he gives more grace. Even if we were to turn to him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, he would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Lord of peace be with you all, always, at all times, and in every way. That is the hope of the people of God. So follow where he leads and obey what he calls in gratitude for the great grace that God has showered on his people through the Lord of peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. We thank you particularly for the presence of peace that you have given us in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is with us always to the end of the age and brings us peace with you. We pray that we would live in that peace with one another as well, that there would be more and more an absence of strife and complete blessedness and perfect unity among your saints here in this world. In this place and around the world, we pray for that, Lord. And we, promise, and we pray that we would remember your promise of grace, that there is always more grace to be had for those who need it, that you provide richly to us and sufficient for all our needs. So may we continually call out to you for your grace and the help of your Holy Spirit that we might live lives that are pleasing in your sight. 
Hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.